Hello. The deadline for the Walk Awards for Effectiveness 2024 has been extended to the 12th of February, so you still have a few more days to enter your campaign into our celebration of strategic brilliance and effective impact. With 12 categories and 5 new regions, this is our biggest award show yet, and the great news is you just need to enter once for your chance to win in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix, which will be announced during Cannes Lions Week. I'm John Bazell, Walks Awards Lead, and I don't want you to miss your chance to win a Global Walk Grand Prix. Imagine truly claiming your campaign is one of the most effective in the world. Head to walk.com now to submit your entry. The Walk Awards 2024. Strategic brilliance, effective impact. It's the award show you've been waiting for. Hello and welcome to The Work Podcast. I'm Anne-Marie Kerwin, America's Editor, and today I'm talking with David Tiltman, Work Head of Content, about the Creative Impact event that was held in New York City at the end of January. For the first time, Work joined with sibling companies Contagious and Lions to bring the debate on effectiveness to most contagious NYC. Today we're recapping some of the highlights of the day and we're going to focus on three big takeaways. Welcome, David. Hi, Anne-Marie. Great to be here. Great to have you. Good to see you. Um, So first, why don't you talk a little bit about the Creative Impact event, what it's all about, and why we held it in New York this year? Yeah, sure. So firstly, it's it's very odd being on this side of the the microphone rather than uh, (laughs) than asking the questions. But listen, Creative Impact, uh, for those who aren't aware, uh, Creative Impact is something that our sister company, Lions uh, and Walk, launched in Cannes in 2023 and what it was was it was it was a part of the festival or track as as it's called uh um internally that focused on joining the dots between uh sort of the world of creativity and the need for commercial impact and what we're trying to do is say not just is creativity effective but actually dig into the questions that sit underneath that so what do we need creativity to do to have an effective sort of marketing-driven growth? What types of creativity are going to do that best? Um, and how do we put creativity within a framework of investment, of media choice, and all the other things uh, to really make it work as hard as it possibly can? And that went down very well in Canada. some great speakers, really good feedback. We wanted to turn it into something that doesn't just happen once a year in the south of France, but becomes a bit of a sort of ongoing mission for us. Um, and again, this is sort of internal politics, but back in September, we acquired a business called Contagious, who many of our listeners will will know. Now, Contagious run um, uh, events in London and New York called Most Contagious, and the New York one was a half-day event. And we looked at that and thought, well, you know what, this could be our opportunity. This could be an opportunity to bring that creative impact format to New York. We extend it from a half day to a full day event. Uh, we we do the most, most contagious sort of inspirational content in the morning. Uh, and then in the afternoon, we, we really turn our attention to uh, creative effectiveness and, and what it takes to be effective. So that's what we did. Uh, we ran it as a pilot. We did the first one in New York back at the end of January. Uh, and well, I, I like to think it was a big, uh, a big hit. But I think as we'll go into the different themes, we'll sort of uncover some of the really, really big questions around uh, creative effectiveness and, and how some of our speakers uh, really sort of shone a light on them. 
Yeah, and we had such a great lineup. I'm excited to talk to you about what the three takeaways were. So we're going to highlight three. The big reveal, David, what's our first takeaway? I'm going to start by focusing on some of the research we talked about in uh, Creative Impact New York. And we, we did a session and we worked with the IPA in London on the session. IPA, many people know, have got a long history of, of effectiveness research. And we called it putting creativity back into effectiveness. And I, I guess just to, to st- take a slight step back, um, partly that's joining up the worlds of creativity and effectiveness, but also, I think both the IPA and we feel that a lot of the discussion around effectiveness has become quite technical and quite, uh, uh, I guess, get quite data driven. And that's great. We all love we all love that. But there's a sort of craft element to it as well that we're we're maybe missing. You know what? Like at the end of the day, we're talking about communications that are actual you know recorded pieces of video or audio or a poster or or something else and to actually sort of bring that sort of craft and creative world uh, back into the discussion of uh, of effectiveness so that was what we're trying to do and we did it in a couple of ways so we had Orlando Word of System One uh, talking about the importance of putting on a show Uh, many of our uh, listeners will be familiar with Orlando's work, the idea of left brain, right brain, how we've become, how we're basically as the the sort of nature of digital platforms and the the sort of short term uh, short term pressures have led us to types of creativity that are not necessarily the most effective. So the the most effective over over the types of creativity over the long term are the ones we're actually underplaying. Um, and so Orlando calls this the timeless importance of, of, of the show, putting on a show. Now, I so say we've, we've discussed those sort of ideas on, on the Walk podcast. We've had Orlando on, indeed. The bit of research I want to focus on a little bit more is from Adam Morgan of Eat Big Fish and his work on the cost of being dull. The cost of being dull, that's an interesting idea. What does Adam mean by the cost of being dull? So it's a really interesting flip. So rather than sort of saying you need to be creative because it's effective, what we're trying to say is, well, if you're dull, there's a cost to it. So it's turning the conversation around and, and trying to sort of play into ideas like loss aversion, which is more powerful. You're, you're, you're more motivated to avoid a loss of something than you are to, to, to gain something extra, if you like. The idea behind this is, is it's no, I mean, it's just reversing the, the, the creative effectiveness argument, but it's saying that, look, you can be effective by spending a lot of money and not having very interesting advertising, but it costs you a lot more money to do that than if you are creative or interesting. And that gets you where you need to be uh, on a much more efficient basis. So it, it brings efficiency and effectiveness together. Is it possible to actually quantify that? Like, there, is there an actual dollar amount that we've discovered? Yes, there is. Uh, it's quite interesting. So in the original research they released over the, uh, sort of over the summer, they did some work with the IPA Data Bank in the UK, and they put this uh, number of £10 million out there. So um, the cost of being dull versus being interesting in the on the average campaign in the IPA Data Bank was £10 million. So it was costing you £10 million more 
to do the same amount of uh, uh, to, to, to achieve the same results uh, as you would have done if you if you made more interesting advertising. And is that the equivalent in the U.S. that it would cost you close to ten million dollars? Um, well, they've had to work it out in a different way in the U.S. So they've got an aggregate number rather than a sort of average number, if you like. But the aggregate number is rather large. Um, now, in the U.S., they use System 1 data, and uh, they've been quite clever about it. They've sort of matched um, System 1 testing scores, to which they use to identify interesting versus dull. And they use a, these, these sort of quartiles ranging from interesting uh, through to uh, slightly dull to quite dull to uh, um, very dull. And uh, what they've then done is look at the amount of money spent on those campaigns and they've done some very clever maths. Anyway, I'll come to the, without showing you the charts, which is impossible on a podcast, uh, I, I can't do the research justice. But the the headline number, which is really, really interesting, is $228 billion dollars. Wow. A very large number. And what they are saying is that if US advertising was all as interesting as the most interesting advertising, if they all got to that top quartile, the advertisers could have spent $228 billion less. So mm. there's, there is a huge amount of money that is being wasted on dull advertising. We have Adam Morgan. Let's have a listen. I think this is interesting because it should allow us to have perhaps different conversations with the CFO, but also different conversations around media planning. There might be all sorts of reasons actually why for a while a particular business needs or wants to be dull. They might have you know, been hit by a bit of blowback in some kind of way and think they don't want to stick their necks above the parapet. That's fine, but let's look at that, understand how much more it's going to cost us to have the same effect as if we were doing interesting stuff. There's also the danger of being ignored, Can't just advertising being ignored. Elizabeth Paul, the chief strategy officer at Martin Agency, was also on the panel with Adam, and she makes the point that advertising that's ignored is also wasted. So let's listen to Elizabeth Paul from Creative Impact talk about the danger of advertising that's ignored. Another way to think about the cost of it. Um, is a stat that frankly should make everyone in marketing very uncomfortable, which is that 84% of ads are never seen. They're somewhere between actively avoided and passively ignored. And I think that is directly connected to this. Like, why do we ignore things? We ignore them because they're dull. We ignore them because they're uninteresting. And if you're going to interrupt my podcast, my show, um, my conversation, then you better entertain me or you better be just as entertaining as the thing you're interrupting. Um, and so obviously we all know we live in an opt-out world, but that 84% represents trillions of dollars of time and treasure and marketing budget. Um, and so I think we need to start shifting the conversation from, you know, the, the risk and bravery it takes to create something really great uh, to actually the, the fear that one should feel, I hate to say it, of creating something that is going to be ignored um, or at least very ineffective. Really interesting to hear Elizabeth talk about that because obviously the Martin Agency was the agency behind the whole uh, solo stove Snoop Dogg campaign that has been in the been in a few headlines recently uh, after the CEO was fired. So it's so quite interesting to her really hear her come out in in sort of defence of of creative advertising. That's right. We can listen. We have Elizabeth right now talking about that issue with the solo stove ad. So let's listen to Elizabeth. 
Um, there's been a lot of talk about Solo Stove uh, in recent days. And while I can't, I can't share any proprietary data at this point, you know, what I have said, and it's okay with them to share, is that that story is still very much being written. It's actually been very effective for their brand in ways that we'll talk about in coming days. Um, but that was actually a relatively small investment with a tremendous upside. So when we look at the ROI on earned media, it was a level of attention that brand never would have been able to afford to buy. They had been this beloved, you know, niche fandom um, and a great growing company through DTC and other channels. And they wanted to be a household name and a, a relatively small investment in a really disruptive idea, you know, netted them, you know, by some calculations, a hundred million dollars worth of earned media. And it made not just the execution, but the brand, a household name. And so if you look at that and you pair it with things like branded search, Google shopping search, and other indicators that that wasn't just a conversation about something happening in pop culture, but it was a conversation about the brand, their unique selling proposition, which is that they are smokeless. I think most people now, you know, know that about a brand they didn't know before. Um, and then you look at the search, you can actually see that it's been incredibly effective for the brand. And so I think that's a really good example when we think about, you know, maybe not the cost of boring, but the opportunity of interesting. Maybe that'll be Adam's next book. We'll go from the cost of boring to the opportunity of interesting. Um, I think when when we're able to share the numbers and you are able to see the tremendous ROI on placing a bet on something that is interesting, and then the way in which people took that and ran with it. So we have this initial study. Are there next steps? Are we taking it further? What's What's coming up? next for this cost of being dull research? Yeah, so this is just the start of this research and they're doing some really, uh, really interesting stuff. So obviously they're trying to push the data further, the quant side uh, of the data. And what they're also trying to do is use a sort of qual piece as well to uh, almost create like a little checklist for brands and agencies of what dull looks like. So you kind of know what to avoid, if you like. They they, uh, they came up with sort of four ways of telling whether you're being dull or not. I'm just going to read them out now because I think, I think they're interesting. I think they're all things we intuitively would think about, but as a kind of framework or a checklist, it, it works quite nicely. So the first one is uh, that you're dealing with a subject that consumers just don't really care about. And I think, you know, lots of marketers have been guilty of, uh, you know, really focusing on product benefits or those sorts of things. Uh, and the advice here is simply to ensure you're meeting consumers in where they where they do care, speaking to them in their language about, you know, what matters to them. And this really reminded me of something like the, the promise to the customer research we did uh, with Roger Martin uh, last year. The second sign of dullness, if you like, is if it's a subject that customers think they already know about. So maybe they do care about it, but they've already heard messaging like that before. So the, the advice here is, are we denying some of their assumptions? Are we portraying it in an interesting way or with a twist or surprising them somehow? The third sign of dullness, if you like, is that uh, the information is presented in the same way as everyone else, so the same style. And really, this is an argument for distinctiveness, use of character, um, and, and just trying to stand out. 
The fourth uh, sign that you might be being dull is are you presenting something in an uninvolving way? So again, are we leaning into the rational or the product benefits? So the advice here is to be using emotion, drama, storytelling. So again, all sort of things that we kind of know, but it's nice to sort of put them together in a, in a bit of a framework and particularly around this idea of avoiding dull. Yeah. And I thought one of the really interesting things they did as part of this was reach out to other creative professions to understand how they make dull subjects interesting. So one of the uh, other creatives they reached out to were the people who work on Sesame Street, who try to make uh, letters and numbers interesting to toddlers. So we have Adam Morgan talking about the people they reached out to, including Sesame Street. Let's have a listen. They did something. I got preschoolers interested in and able to talk about numbers and letters and things that educational experts didn't think was possible. And they completely changed. Again, as you'll know, I, but I've, it's new to me, I found it fascinating, um, the kind of kindergarten system, because kindergartens had kids coming in who actually could do all of these things. And so the whole notion of early schooling was completely changed by Sesame Street because they made it more interesting. I mean, it's extraordinary. One of the things that makes this the most effective advertising campaign in the world so effective is the use of humor. Using humor to promote a professional development program like the Master of Advertising Effectiveness might seem unusual, but in fact, humorous advertising is among the most effective advertising. Yet the use of humor has declined considerably in recent years, which is the exact opposite of funny. To learn more about what makes advertising effective, head over to mae.academy. That's mae.academy. Okay, David, so we're up to reveal number two. What's our next takeaway? So the next takeaway, or the next, I guess, big theme from Creative Impact New York was a real focus on culture. And the, this idea, uh, we use this term a lot internally here, that effectiveness is a team sport, that it takes lots of people working together to get to, to great outcomes. Uh, and that starts in the client in terms of the way not just the marketing team work together, but the way the marketing team work with other parts of the business. Uh, and then, of course, as you get through the process, uh, you you get sort of the collaboration between client and agency. Yeah, there was a lot of focus on the way marketing works within an organization, and in particular, the relationships that you form with executives in the C-suite. You're right. It's particularly that relationship between sort of CMO, CEO, CFO uh, that's really, uh, really important. And I moderated a panel uh, as part of the event with um, a couple of, of senior clients. And one of them was Melissa Wildermuth, uh, Global Creative Director at General Mills. Um, and they, they've done some really interesting stuff as it sort of came out on the panel. Um, the marketing team at General Mills is temporarily uh, reporting into the to the CFO. It's quite an unusual state of affairs, and Melissa was very keen to point out a temporary state of affairs. Um, but it was interesting to hear how that had sort of changed some of the, the perspective and also really sort of highlighted the need for uh, the different parts of the business, to for marketing to really engage the different parts of the business. So a lot, a lot of the time, the marketing teams can be quite inwardly focused, but but actually they need to be really sort of 
engaging with different parts of the business if they're going to make that case. And we can hear Melissa talk a little bit about this now. I actually, I mean, when I think of a culture of creative effectiveness, I think that goes hand in hand with the culture of creativity. Because I think a lot of times effectiveness actually focuses on the end goal, but you have to just as much think about what goes into that, you know, what is the input so that it can get to the output that you need. I think about it really as like, are we spending enough time nurturing ideas? Are we spending enough time understanding truly how to bring value to the consumers that we serve? And I think if we spend that time in the upfront, then I think the outcome of that, which is really the effectiveness and the impact, is so much easier to get to. Um, And so I try to instill the creativity and the creative effectiveness together so that they're not so isolated because I think they um, together just become more of a culture that we want, which is inspiring and inspiration that delivers impact. Yeah. So one of the other companies that was at Creative Impact and that we've been following for a while has done a great job with aligning internally as McDonald's and global CMO Morgan Flatley was at Creative Impact to talk about that. So let's listen to Morgan right now. To get consumers to pay attention today, we have to take big swings. And so if there's just another key piece of advice I would give to marketers is the importance of big swings and big risks. You know, it's very easy to do small incremental things. It feels quite comfortable to do small incremental things, but you actually are never going to get the type of momentum I think that we all look for around great creativity by doing small incremental things. And this was a really big learning for us at McDonald's, that we needed to get out of what was safe and incremental to doing things that actually pushed the brand into a much bigger way and involved a little bit of risk. I really love that piece from Morgan Flatley on swinging big. And there's so much, there was so much in that presentation we could have pulled out, but uh, I really like that idea of swinging big and how they'd learned that. And it just goes back to the cost of being dull that we talked about earlier, but the, 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 the bigger, bolder platforms were the ones where they'd really, uh, they really started getting breakthrough results. And I think uh, that took me back to the panel with Melissa again from General Mills. As one of the things they've done that's really interesting is is build lots of partnerships with um, you know, third party influencers or organisations and do some really interesting stuff which you wouldn't necessarily expect from a company like General Mills. And um, we asked her about it, and and here's what she had to say. Well, I think I mean I think there's you know in a in a big publicly traded company like the one that I work for, I do think you want to have short-term results that you can point to that are an example that you don't have to actually garner every single time. Because I'm, you know, my job and the job of so many people is not only to focus on the short-term, but to look at the long-term. And so I think sometimes we can become blind to the long-term and the opportunity if we're so razor-focused on the short-term. So I look at, you know, we partnered with Travis Scott on Reese's peanut butter puff cereal. And when we did that initially, people were like, oh my God, like what's going on and what's the idea and what's happening here? And this feels risky. And it was risky, but that's an element to to the best creativity. I actually think if it isn't risky, then why do it? Because there's nothing new in there. 
but it drove double-digit baseline growth for us. And so that then became a proxy for when we wanted to partner with other celebrities like Lil Yachty, Cause. And so trying to do something and then kind of holding it up as a symbol of the impact you can make, I think is also really effective getting people to buy in because they're like, oh, that was different and it worked. This is different too. And so I can see this working also. So we've reached our third and final takeaway, David. What's your final reveal? Well, it's linked to that culture piece. It's, it's another part of that, of that, the importance of culture and, and, and importance of effectiveness as a team sport. But in our final session of the day, we, we looked at ideas getting stuck. Now, there's a bit of a background to this particular session, uh, and that's a, a session we did in Cannes with a bunch of strategists, uh, Rob Campbell, Martin Weigel, Paula Bloodworth, and they. the title of that uh, session was Strategy is Constipated, Imagination is the Laxative, which is still one of my favourite ever uh, Cannes <laughs> titles. Um, now, the point they were trying to make was that they... All the frameworks, the processes that we have are leading us to the all to the same place. And there's this idea, it came up a few times at the conference, that we're in the age of bland. You know, all company logos start to look the same. All uh, book covers start to look the same. All movie posters start to look the same. Ads within certain categories, like cars, start to look the same. It's, it's very hard in that sort of uh, system, that corporate uh, culture, to get stuff that is different through the system, to get stuff that maybe challenges the norms or goes against the grain. Um, because everything everything we're doing with all the frameworks and the processes we have is, is pushing us uh, to sort of incremental um, adaptation and change rather than big breakthrough ideas. And we wanted to, to take that idea and move it on a bit. And to do this, we, we um, gave a session over to... Mark Pollard, who runs the Sweathead Strategy Community in New York, and he brought together uh, two really, really smart um, strategists and marketers. So um, Lexi Perez and Grace Gordon, both of whom, interestingly, having worked from some big tech companies, now both have ended up working at, at fintech brands. And both of them have got experience of, of trying to get big ideas through the system. And the, the idea was to do a quick fire session that looks at some of the big blockers and, and how you can unblock them. Some of some of them are no surprise, you know, things like scepticism about the, the power of brand, particularly in tech companies where the product is king. But one thing that came through in a number of different ways was the importance of politics and the way uh, marketers and uh, and indeed their agencies need to navigate politics internally uh, within companies to get stuff done. I think we can hear from Mark uh, talking about that now. So let's start with where they get stuck. I've recently been interviewing people who've worked in agencies and who now work brand side. And what they tell me is a lot of creativity, a lot of ideas and a lot of themselves, they get stuck in politics. Politics is a massive part of the job that when you're working in an agency, you, you know about and you deal with, but not day to day. 
like uh, when you when you brand side. Uh, also, potentially weaker and lower creative expectations. The phrase "happy if anything leaves the building" or "if anything gets made" is a phrase that comes up. So that's another place or another reason that ideas can get stuck inside uh, inside brands. And, and another big issue that is difficult to talk about, I think, is brand skepticism. Sometimes at a director or even at the C level. So maybe in a tech company, they just don't really believe you need to focus on brand or even advertising or that programmatic this, programmatic that will solve everything. So that can be a, a massive issue to deal with. And then generally speaking, not a lot of appetite for risk inside a lot of companies. So they're the reasons that ideas often get stuck. And so what I've been hearing from the people inside these brands is also that they're quite individual. Like the, their day jobs are relatively isolated. And so what they have to do is cobble together a team which might be beyond their department, beyond their group, and work out how, how to use political means to get ideas through the system. So it seems like a lot of, uh, not Machiavellian work, but uh, a lot of understanding people and working out how to get them to accept ideas. It seems to be the bulk of the job. Yeah, that's so interesting because it really goes back to what Melissa was saying about how it really is all about building alliances across the company and that importance of that continual communication. Yeah, exactly. And and both Lexi and Grace started started to make those sort of points where sometimes if if you're the only person advocating for something, you have to go and find like-minded people. So it, it's not just about the CEO and the CFO and the CMO all getting on together. It, it's about the people who are who maybe have a mandate for change within an organization or want to try and do something a little bit different, almost creating a, a team or a gang or, or, you know, having each other's backs in some way. Because actually, if, if you're just trying to do this on your own, it can be quite a demoralizing place. And so, um, yes, understanding the politics is really important, but having a group of like-minded people who can push change forward is is more likely to result in, in a good sort of outcome. And I think we can hear Mark talk a little bit more about that as well. There are various ways that people try to get ideas through the politics and the bureaucracies that they're in. Everything from education, trying to share numbers with number-oriented people, uh, perhaps bringing in outside people to share inspirational case studies and create a sense of envy. We did mention General Mills, and I've seen this up close. I was at one of their kickoffs about 12 years ago in uh, Minneapolis, and Nature Valley had just done a really really big and relatively novel campaign and the heads of the groups showed this campaign as something for everyone to aspire to and immediately the types of briefs that we were seeing started to change because clear and high expectations were set so these are some of the practical things that i've seen work and this all gets back to our building a culture of creative effectiveness why it's important to have that culture there in the company to move these things forward right exactly exactly and the more the more we've looked at it at walk over the years the more we found that the kinds of thing the kinds of things we normally look at in effectiveness research you know how you spend your budget where you place uh ads how you measure things is only half of the equation the other half is what goes on within organizations it's it is that cultural point uh, and it, it's so important because it's what enables everything else. Um, so it's something, you know, we're, we're still looking at, we're looking at in uh, a lot of ways um, ahead of Cannes this year. Um, and it really came through strongly in uh, Creative Impact New York. 
Well, I'm very excited to hear more about this as we get to Cannes and continue the creative impact discussion. Thank you, David, for that illuminating wrap-up of our first New York Creative Impact event. If you have examples of U.S. companies doing great effective marketing and want to highlight those, or if you have an opinion on what works or doesn't work, the cost of being dull or how to get unstuck, we at work are eager to hear from you. If you haven't done so already, remember to subscribe to the Work Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For Work, I'm Anne-Marie Kerwin, America's Editor. Thanks for listening. Thank you.